Today's passage comes from Jonah chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, and as I read it, you can just follow along with me. Jonah chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains I went down to the land, whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, before we get started, let's just uh, bow our heads briefly for just a brief word of prayer. Let's pray together. Uh, God, every time we come and we uh, read your word, uh, we know that the potential there um, to give us life is always there. And for whatever reason, sometimes our hearts are not ready to receive it. Uh, maybe we're a little too distracted. Maybe there's uh, just personal issues, struggles, and sins in our lives that we're dealing with. Um, maybe we're just physically tired. But God, we also know that it's not by our will uh, in which your word comes to us, in which your word has power over us and has the ability to form and shape our hearts, but it really is by the power of your spirit. And so we pray, God, for your spirit to be uh, deeply present within all of us here today, that as we hear uh, these words would be words of life to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, you know what I decided to do today? Uh, I'm going to conclude our series on prayer. And, you know, it's been a long time. Uh, I started this in September, so we're going to finish our series on prayer today. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time, what we've been doing in the fall semester, we've been looking at prayers in the Bible and just seeing how people in the Bible have prayed and tried to glean some insights about prayer through that. And I was actually going to, I was originally planning on preaching on another passage today. But uh, to be quite honest, I was having like a hard time. <laughs> I, I was writing the sermon, and I was like, oh, this is terrible. So I just kind of scrapped it, and uh, I started over. And the reason I chose the book of Jonah is, uh, you know, I was actually in this book again this week because uh, next week I have to uh, speak at a retreat, and I'm going to preach through the book of Jonah at this retreat. And I was just reminded about how, uh, how powerful this story is, but at the same time, you know, we're all looking for authenticity, and I think uh, the book of Jonah kind of keeps it real. Uh, in this book of Jonah, there's a, there's a prayer here in chapter 2. And so as I was studying the book of Jonah, I was like, hey, Jonah prays too. And so this would be a wonderful thing to add on, I mean, to, uh, to finish our series on. So uh, we're going to look at this prayer in chapter 2. And if you don't know anything about the story of Jonah, probably if you do know anything about the story of Jonah, the one thing you know is uh, there's a big fish that f swallows Jonah. But Jonah actually is... Uh, says a lot more, and it's a very powerful little story. You know, Jonah is, I think, a very fascinating figure because he is a prophet, but he's not the kind of person you would imagine when you imagine a prophet. He's a little bit like the prodigal son in that when God tells him to do something, his first reaction was to actually run away and go in the opposite direction. And then what happens to him? He experiences this dramatic event. He is in a storm, 
And in that storm, he gets thrown into the sea. And while he's in the sea, a big fish comes and swallows him. And uh, that brings us to chapter 2. And uh, this is where we see him praying. And, you know, I was reading the children's Bible. uh, Sometimes I read the children's Bible to my kids. And, you know, chapter 4, the book of Jonah doesn't end where you would expect it to end, where, oh, Jonah is this, like, reformed man. He's completely changed. But in chapter 4, you know, there's problems with Jonah as well. And so he does go through this period of change and reformation, and he experiences the presence of God. But then in chapter 4, he he gets angry at God, and he kind of throws this tantrum at God again. And uh, in the children's Bible, it doesn't actually talk about that. It basically says, right, uh, Jonah disobeyed God. He's in the belly of the fish. He prays. Uh, He experiences God's grace. And then when God tells him to uh, go to Nineveh, he obeys. And it kind of ends in a happy ending. And, you know, I I, I had to tell my kids, you know, that's not really how the story of Jonah ends, but the way it ends is not as simple. It's a little bit complicated. And what we make of this figure uh, is not so simple. It's not so black and white. And that's actually why I like Jonah, because isn't that what the reality of living by faith is like? Sometimes we go through moments where we, you know, have these powerful experiences of grace, and we go through a period of reformation. We go through a period of obedience. But then there's a point where maybe we're not completely changed and we kind of go the other way and we get angry at God for various reasons. And so it's complicated. That's, that's kind of part of what being a, a human is. And uh, we won't reach perfection until, uh, until we're with the Lord in the new heaven and the new earth. So I thought the book of Jonah would actually be a very appropriate book to look at or a very appropriate person to look at, especially as we end our series in prayer because... Uh, What I'm going to guess is most of our prayer lives are probably not like this, but most of our prayer lives are probably, you know, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, sometimes it's really bad, sometimes it's really, really bad, then it gets a little bit better, and then it goes back to bad, and then maybe, right? That's probably what our prayer life looks like, and um, I think it's modeled very well in terms of the life of Jonah. So, Jonah, who is Jonah? We actually don't have a lot of information on Jonah. Uh, The only thing we have is from 2 Kings chapter 14, and what that chapter tells us is Jonah was actually a somewhat successful prophet in that whenever he delivered the word of the Lord, whatever he said ended up getting fulfilled. So in that sense, he was successful. It also tells us that he worked during the reign of King Jeroboam II, and he was in the northern kingdom of Israel, which uh, ultimately was conquered by the Assyrian Empire. Now, all that history, if you went to Bible study, uh, you'd be somewhat familiar with it because we've been going through First and Second Kings. But basically, the northern kingdom is, uh, is the kingdom that had a string of bad kings and was uh, the kingdom that was not doing well spiritually. And it was also the first kingdom that fell to foreign nations. So the northern kingdom of Israel, you have the southern kingdom of Judah. Northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians, and then eventually the southern kingdom fell as well, and the people of God were exiled. Now, here's the thing. Nineveh is a great city, and God says to Jonah, go to Nineveh. But Nineveh is a great city of the Assyrian Empire, right? This is competition. This is the enemies of Israel. And so when God says to Jonah, go to Nineveh, he doesn't really understand why God would do that. God, why are you sending me to our enemies? Why are you sending me to the place where I, the last place I want to go? You know, if the people of Nineveh, if uh, they do well, then you know what's going to happen to your people, the people of Israel, we're not going to do well. And there's kind of this zero-sum game where when the Assyrians rise and the empire rises and gets more powerful and 
what are they going to do? They're going to expand and conquer, and therefore the people of Israel will decline. And so Jonah, he doesn't understand. God says, go to Nineveh, and Jonah says no. And he runs the completely opposite way. He gets into a boat, and once he gets into this boat, the sea starts to get really rough. And so the men in the boat, they're, they're scared. If you've ever been in a boat with choppy water, uh, it is a scary situation. Uh, I probably haven't been in too choppy water, but I've been in it once. And uh, everybody on the boat was throwing up. And, like, really, the boat's, like, kind of going up and down, up and down. It can be a scary thing. So, you know, they're on this boat, and Jonah's on this boat, and... You know, God sends a storm, and this water gets really choppy, and people are afraid. And Jonah says to these sailors, uh, yeah, the storm is here uh, because of me, right? I'm the reason. And uh, if you want the storm to calm down, then you got to throw me into the sea. And so eventually what they do is they, you know, they're so scared, they pick Jonah up, they throw him into the sea. And while he's in the sea, God sends a big fish. This big fish swallows Jonah, and he's in the belly of this fish for three days. And while he's in that belly of the fish, this is where he prays. And this is where it leads us to chapter 2 right here. And I think what's interesting about chapter 2 in this scene, you know, commentators say it's like, a, it's like a strange interruption to the narrative and to the story that's going on. Uh, it it kind of feels like it doesn't belong. Uh, there's like this very uh, poetic aspect to it that interrupts this uh, s- narratival story that's going on. And, uh, you know, it's a little bit, you remember like those old TV shows where, you know, it would be like a TV show and then all of a sudden they would have like these weird music video montages. Does anybody remember that? You know, I have an example of that, but I'm a little embarrassed to uh, admit that I, I watched, I used to watch a show. But for the sake of the illustration, I will embarrass myself. Uh, anybody ever watch Baywatch back in the day? <laughs> yeah, you did. You just didn't admit it. Uh, like they, I, I thought it was like the strangest thing in the story. They would have like these video montages like out of the middle of nowhere and David Hasselhoff is like, <laughs> right, with music background. Jonah chapter two is a little bit like that, which is why commentators are like, you know, it's a little bit strange. You kind of have this story going on and then bam, you got some poetry, right? Well, I think it's actually a fitting interruption to the story. Uh, and I think it's actually a good illustration or analogy of prayer. Because here's what I always say about prayer. I think prayer is ultimately an, an interruption, and it's supposed to be an interruption for our lives. You know, God has to interrupt Jonah's plans, and at this point, his plans to get away from what God wants him to do in order to get him to a point of prayer. And I think that's what a bit of what prayer is for us. It's, it's an interruption. You know, when we take time to pray, what is it doing? It's interrupting our day, right? It's interrupting our schedules. It's interrupting our mornings. It's interrupting our evenings. Uh, when we decide to get together and to gather on an on a evening or on a particular day, what are we doing? We're, we could do, be doing so many other things, probably so many more productive things. We could be doing our laundry, our grocery shopping. We could be watching Netflix. But we're saying we're going to interrupt this time uh, to pray because we find prayer to be that important. And, you know, I think the lives that we live today, and I've said this before, you know, it's a little bit different than maybe like 10, 15, 20 years ago from the lives that people had before because I think we can now potentially fill every moment of our lives with some kind of distraction. And, it, you know, it's because of the smartphone. Uh, because we have our smartphones, you know, when we used to wait in line, you just would have to wait in line. And maybe as you're waiting in line, you would think about something, you would think about deeper things. 
or if you were taking a train or something and you didn't have a smartphone, you just kind of, you know, you're bored. But when you're in the midst of the boredness, uh, your mind can start to think about deeper things. But we don't even have those moments of boredom as much anymore, if at all, because uh, if we ever get bored, we just pull out our phone, read an article, uh, text, read our email, check our email, play a game. You know, if we aren't intentional about interrupting our lives and the rhythms of our lives with prayer, then we may never be a people of prayer. And if we aren't a people of prayer, then guess what? We are going to miss out on one of the most powerful tools that God gives us in order to form and change our hearts. We're going to miss out on that. This prayer is an important prayer because this is where we see a change of heart taking place in this prophet Jonah. Now, even though Jonah is a prophet, and again, he's, pr- he's a pretty successful prophet, there is something missing about his own knowledge of God in terms of how he relates to God. And I think through this prayer, we begin to see several important shifts taking place in the life of Jonah. First, I think there is a shift from viewing God as uh, impersonal to now viewing him as personal. You know, this is actually the first time in a text where Jonah prays, and there's actually other people who pray before Jonah. So the men at sea who are afraid for their lives, who were not the people of God, who were not Israelites, they actually pray before the prophet Jonah. They cry out to God before Jonah does. And all we see Jonah doing is he's ignoring God, he's disobeying God, uh, before he even gets to a place where he can talk to God. But, you know, before this chapter, we don't see Jonah talking to God. And, you know, this is, I think, a small detail, but it says a lot about where Jonah was in terms of how he viewed God. Now, if you look at verse 2, he starts off by saying this, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. And it's, you know, it's very personal. You can tell by the use of these, uh, the third-person perspective. I'm sorry, it's very impersonal, and you can kind of tell by the use of the the third-person perspective. And then immediately after that, what does he say? Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Now, both of those things, it's Hebrew parallelism, which is basically saying the same thing, and the function of it in Hebrew poetry is as a way to intensify and as a way to show some kind of progression. But both of those statements are essentially saying the same exact thing, right? I called out to God and God answered me. But it says it in a very different way. The first way he says it, I called out to the Lord and out of my distress he answered me. But then the second is very direct, right? Out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice. Now the way we use language and the way we talk to people tells us a lot about the kind of relationship we have. If, uh, you know, if my wife was like next to me and I, you know, I, I said, uh, um, you know, out of, I don't know, I don't know what am I going to say. Out of my distress, I called my wife and she answered me. You know, it sounds a little bit less personal than if I were to turn to her and I say, you know, out of my distress, uh, I called to you and you answered me, right? There's a difference in terms of the level of relationship. One's a little bit more impersonal. One's a little bit more personal. One shows greater intimacy. You see, I think it's very common for people, especially if you're somebody who grew up in the church, probably very common for you to kind of have that relationship with God that is like what Jonah has here. It's a little bit impersonal. I think plenty of people get by thinking that Christian faith is about going to church, about, you know, doing good things and nice things, 
Uh, just like there are plenty of husbands who think, uh, plenty of husbands and wives who think that marriage is about, you know, you share an apartment together or you share the same room together and you do chores and uh, that kind of thing. But you know, if you don't have intimacy in either of those relationships, if you don't have a personal relationship with God, and if a husband and wife don't have a personal relationship with one another, you know what it creates? It, it just becomes very dreary and very draining. If you find the Christian faith to be very dreary and draining, and that's a very real possibility, the first place you want to go and ask yourself is, do I actually have a relationship with God, or is it just all about actions and what I'm supposed to do, and those kind of things? You know, I think you see this in human relationships as well, and uh, perhaps it's the same with how some of us relate to God also. It's always easier to talk about a person than to talk directly to a person, right? Uh, that's why people gossip. It's just easier to gossip about other people or what this person did to me rather than actually confront the person and say, you know, you did this to me and I didn't like it. Uh, you know, until you take a step of engaging personally, there's always going to be relational distance. Uh, if you're always talking about somebody, then you will never be close to that person until you actually engage and talk to them. And I think the same thing works spiritually as well in terms of our relationship with God. Uh, you might know a whole bunch of Bible. You might know a whole bunch of theology. You might know the right answers to say if somebody asks you a question about the Christian faith. And as long as all you do is talk about God and talk about Christ and never to him, there's always going to be some kind of relational distance. And so how do you go from knowing about God to actually knowing God in a personal way for Jonah, it happens through prayer in the belly of the fish. Second, there's another shift that takes place, and this shift takes place from a place of despair to a place of hope. I think one of the things we struggle with in life is we, we struggle to keep perspective, I think. If you've ever looked at those, you know, like those magic eye 3D posters, and uh, when you look at it from... Uh, from one perspective, you, you just kind of see like this pattern, right? But then you uh, try to look at it from a different perspective and all of a sudden you, you see this image in the midst of the patterns. And, you know, this might be uh, only my experience, but uh, when I look at these things, I, I find it hard to actually maintain the picture, right, that you're supposed to see. And like I'm, I'm staring at it and then, oh, I get it. And I see what the picture is. Oh, it's a picture of an elephant. And then I kind of blink and I lose it. I think that's kind of how our lives can be because, you know, we're supposed to have a certain perspective in view of who God is. Who is God? He created the world. Who is God? He's sovereign. He's in control. Who is God? God is loving. God is gracious. God is merciful. God is powerful. We are supposed to have a certain perspective of looking at the world in view of that truth. You know, the reality is as we live in the weeds of the world, as stuff happens to us, uh, we blink and we lose that perspective and we freak out and we get anxious or we get angry and those kind of things. We're constantly blinking. If we could summarize Jonah's struggle here, I think we could say he's lost some perspective. And why not, right? He's in the northern kingdom of Israel and things are not going well in the northern kingdom of Israel. He's serving in under the, uh, the reign of an evil king, someone who didn't do uh, what was right in the Lord's eyes. And perhaps he too has lost sight of who God is. 
and that's why he's in despair, and that's why he's lacking in hope. God is saying, go to the Assyrians, go to Nineveh, and uh, preach a message of compassion to them. And Jonah's like, what? I don't understand that. I don't want to do that. But you see, it's in the belly of the fish where he begins to see a shift. And you can see that shift by the word yet. In verse 3, he recalls that God cast him into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded him. What is he recollecting here? He's recalling the low, dark place that he is in. Basically, he's saying, I might as well be dead, and I might as well be cut off from God. And at this moment, there seems to be no hope for him. Have you ever been there, friends, where uh, everything just seems like, ugh, whether it's because of circumstances, whether just because of internal stuff, it's just, ugh, is anything ever going to get better? Am I ever going to feel better? Am I ever going to feel and experience the joy of the Lord again and be connected to him again? Right? He's in a place of despair, and there's no hope for him. But then a shift takes place in verse 4, and he says this, Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Now, what does that mean? You know, in a Jewish worldview, the temple signifies the presence of God. The temple is where God dwells. So when Jonah is saying, I will again look to your holy temple, what he is basically saying is this, no longer am I going to go in a direction where I'm running away from God and the presence of God, but no, I want to turn to the Lord and return to the presence of God. And by the way, that is the fundamental definition of what repentance is. You see, I think when, once he makes uh, that step of repentance and says, I will turn again to your holy temple, his perspective starts to change. And his prayer begins to take on this note of hope. You know, Psalm 73 is one of my favorite psalms, and uh, it's written by this guy named Asaph. And Asaph is struggling with doubt. And the reason he's struggling with doubt is because he's looking at his life, and he's looking at the lives of other people who are wicked, and he's saying, look at the wicked. They're getting rich. Their lives are comfortable. Their lives are so easy. Uh, I look at my life. Why is my life so crappy? It doesn't say that in the Bible. I'm paraphrasing, right? But that's basically saying, why is my life so terrible? If God is so good, how is this fair? If God is so just, why am I the one who is struggling so much? And then he has this moment where his perspective changes. And when does it change? The same place for Jonah. It changes when he enters into the sanctuary of God. And then he gets some clarity. And he realized, you know, it's not about my circumstances. It's not about the, the people who are rich and wealthy and wicked. It's not about them either. But God is good because he draws near to me. That's his conclusion. For Jonah here, right, he's running away from God. But I think, too, he realizes the same thing as he turns to the holy temple. And he says, you know, there is hope. There is hope because God is near. When he looks to this, whole, to this temple, he realizes God's nearness is ultimately what he truly needs. Now, Jonah here, he doubts God's goodness for a different reason. He doubts God's goodness because God wants to show mercy to Israel's enemies, to the Ninevites. But once he gazes upon the holy temple, he gets a change of perspective. Right? He looks into that, uh, that magic 3D poster and he begins to see 
the real picture that is in there, and hope begins to fill his heart. And you see, it's not up to him to decide whom God ought to show mercy to. It's not up to him to decide whether these Ninevites ought to be saved, but that ultimately belongs to the Lord. Third, the final shift that takes place here is the shift from death to salvation. Uh, I think this is probably the most powerful and important shift that we see in this prayer. You know, if you look at verses 5 and 6, a lot of the imagery here has a lot to do with death. It says, The waters closed in over me to take my life. Weeds were wrapped around my head. And uh, basically uh, that conveys a picture that Jonah is being wrapped in like graves, grave clothes and being buried in a tomb. Uh, this is all imagery of death. And I think Jonah probably thought that he was going to die in sea, right? Sailors throw you overboard and then a big fish swallows you and it's like, oh, that's the end of my life. Uh, I think he knew that he probably really messed up when he ran away from God and what he called him to do. And I think he probably thought that God was going to take his life in that moment because that would be just. You disobey God, God is going to take your life. But you see the remarkable thing about this is God doesn't end up taking Jonah's life. God ends up saving him. How does God save him? God saves him through this big fish. Now, when we read this story, sometimes we think, oh, God is saving him from the big fish. But no, the big fish was a means or an instrument of salvation for Jonah. You know, uh, there's something really interesting going on in the Hebrew that uh, doesn't come across in the English. And uh, let me be a little bit technical because I think it's an important point to make. You know, in the English language, nouns don't have genders, but other in other languages, nouns have genders. So in the Hebrew language, you have a masculine gender, you have a feminine gender, and then you have something called a neuter gender. You know, in Jonah 1.17, the word used for fish, uh, it's in the masculine gender. So the wor- Hebrew word is dog. In chapter 2, verse 1, the word used for fish changes gender, and it becomes the feminine gender. It becomes daga. And then in chapter 2, verse 10, the word used for fish changes gender again, and it goes back to the masculine form, dog. Now, why would this writer change the gender of this word for fish back and forth? I think it's because the writer wants the readers to know that this fish is not an instrument of judgment, but this fish is an instrument of salvation. It's almost as if the writer is saying that when Jonah is in the belly of this fish, this fish is pregnant. That's why some people will translate to one as saying that Jonah prayed to God not from the belly of the fish, but from the womb of the fish. And so what this fish is meant to communicate, what this fish is meant to show us and tell us, I think what the writer is trying to say, this fish signifies new life and a new beginning for Jonah, just like birth, right? See, Jonah experiences salvation. He's given a second chance in life. He was supposed to die because of his disobedience, but God spared him and brought him up out of this pit. And that had to have a profound impact on Jonah. No longer is he disgruntled. No longer is he, uh, um, I guess, disobedient. But now he's, he's filled with a sense of thanksgiving. No longer is he unwilling to fulfill the vow that he made to be a prophet. And the climax comes when Jonah declares, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation is not up to me. 
Salvation ultimately belongs to the Lord. Now, if you're looking at this prayer and you see that Jonah made all these shifts, maybe you say something like this. How do I do that? If I'm in a place where God is impersonal, if I'm in a place of despair, if I'm in a place where uh, I feel like I'm about to die, where death is around me, how do I make that shift to the personal? How do I make that shift to hope? How do I make that shift to life and salvation? Now, this is a series on prayer, and so maybe you expect me to say the answer is prayer, of course, and to be sure, that is part of the answer, but I think there is actually a more foundational answer than that. Uh, We only read chapter 2 without the rest of the story, and if you isolate chapter 2, as I said before, Jonah looks like a pretty good, he looks pretty good. He looks reformed. He looks changed. He's a man who's been redeemed, right? And in prayer, he made all the shifts that he was supposed to make. Well, it's a little bit more complicated than that. On the one hand, he, he does change because when God tells him to go to Nineveh in chapter 3, he goes and he obeys God. But then when God spares the Ninevites from destruction, uh, Jonah turns into like this little child and throws this temper tantrum against God. And so, th- you know, there is an aspect where he still doesn't really get it. He understands grace to a certain degree, but he doesn't understand it enough. How does God show that he is gracious? You ever think about that? How do we know that God is gracious to us? How do we know that God is gracious to people? It is not going to be in the moments when we're doing well. It's not going to be in the moments where we think we deserve it because then it wouldn't be grace. See, grace is a free gift. You know where we see God being the most gracious? When he bestows grace upon his people when they least deserve it? Jonah was a flawed prophet to be sure. Uh, He did a lot of things wrong, and yet God was gracious to him, and yet God gave him life and salvation. Who are the Ninevites? The Ninevites are the enemies of Israel, and yet God was gracious to them in this episode. Who are the people of Israel? Well, they're disobedient, following a king who doesn't want to follow the will of God, and God shows grace. You see, where we see God being the most gracious is when our faith is at its weakest, even at times where we are living in disobedience. And I think that's the point of this story in Jonah, that God is a gracious God, and we see his grace bestowed to a people who don't deserve it. So how do we make the shift to to the other side? Answer, we don't do it at all. That shift comes when God does it for us. And how does God do it for us? In the person and work of Jesus Christ. How do we gain a personal relationship with a personal God? How do flawed people come into the presence of a perfect God? When our God, who is perfect, first takes a step towards us and reaches out to us and pursues us and initiates personal relationship with us. You see, we are in the Christmas season, and, uh, you know, I didn't do a series on Advent like other churches, but let me just give a plug for Christmas, okay? (laughs) Here's a Christmas message. God became personal by becoming a human being in the person of Jesus Christ through his incarnation. That's what the message of Christmas is all about. What step could be bigger than that, than God taking on the form of human nature so that he could be that much more personal to us? How do we take that shift from a place of despair to a place of hope? Well, when Jesus rose again from the dead, that's where our hope is found. 
First Peter 1 says it's a living hope, which means it's a hope that cannot be killed. No circumstance can take that hope away. There are days where I'm sure we all get discouraged, where I get discouraged about various things. We get discouraged about the state of the world. We get discouraged about the state of the church. We get discouraged about uh, the state of our families, the state of our jobs, whatever it is. Discouragement comes to us all. And in those moments when that comes to me, I have to remind myself, you know what? There is always reason for hope. And as a believer, I have to believe that. There is always reason for hope because Jesus was raised to life from death. That means true light has entered into darkness. That means the power of the kingdom of God is now a present reality. And that is something that should also always incite hope. Nothing can take that away. And last, and maybe most important, the shift from death to life certainly only happens by the power of God. Uh, we just talked about Christmas. Let me talk about Easter, right? Let me uh, get ahead. Um, <clears throat> you know, I, I have a four-year-old daughter, and I don't know if this is too early for a four-year-old to start asking, but last week she, she started asking me about death, and it took me a little bit off guard. And, uh, you know, we're, we're like at the table, we're playing like Legos, and then she goes, Daddy, are you going to die? <laughs> I was like, uh, you're watching too much TV. <laughs> but she's like, Daddy, are you going to die? I was like, well, honestly, yeah, one day I will die. And she's like, I don't want you to die. And I said, I don't want to die either, but, you know, eventually it's going to happen. Is Mommy going to die? I, I guess I could have lied to her, but, you know, I was just being truthful. I was like, yeah, you know, Mommy's going to die too like oh i don't want mommy to die i was like yeah i don't want mommy to die too <laughs> but you know i looked at it as an opportunity to share the gospel and i said but you know abby that's why it's important to believe in jesus because even though mommy and daddy are going to die one day jesus is going to raise us back to life and you know at a very most basic and simple level what is more powerful and important and comforting than that truth right Jesus is going to raise us back to life. You know, her questions will get more complicated. Uh, Daddy, why do so many people hate each other in the world? Why is there so much racism? Why is there so much uh, political division, right, as she gets older? Hopefully a lot later. <laughs> <laughs> what is more hopeful and important to say, yeah, there's a lot of problems in this world, but God is going to make the world new again and everything's going to become better. You see what's beautiful about, you know, talking theology with children, young children, is very challenging because we have all these abstract concepts and sometimes it's hard to explain. But if you find a way to explain it and get to the very core of those basic truths, then you really find out um, with clarity what gives us hope in our faith. Why does our faith make a difference? Is there anything more important than the shift from death to life? Is there anything more important than to cling to the reality that our lives are redeemed by the blood of Christ? And therefore, is there any other perspective by which we ought to live by? No. That is the most important perspective that we can have. Now, clinging to this perspective, as I said, is so important but can be such a challenge 
But you know what? This is where prayer matters. To hold on to that perspective, is it worth constantly interrupting our lives each and every day? It sure is. Is it worth taking a moment out of our busy schedules and even saying, hey, I need to get this done, but rather than get it done, I'm just going to spend some time praying. Yeah, it sure is. Now, I'm not saying be irresponsible, right? If one of those things is you got to, I don't know, eat, then yeah, you should eat. But I do think we probably um, could better use our time for more spiritual things. You know, as a pastor, maybe you think I, uh, I have it all together too. Uh, I'm, I'm probably like a Jonah. <laughs> I struggle with prayer too. Um, but let me, let me just share a little personal testimony before I end. I do think God is growing me in uh, the area of prayer. And here's why. Uh, you know, there are times where I don't have a, you know, like this week because I scrapped the sermon and I started over. I didn't actually have a lot of time uh, to prepare this message, this particular message. But I felt like, you know, I still need to pray over it. And so I was like, yeah, if uh, I can't spend uh, the time I need on this message and crafting this message, and maybe you're thinking right now, oh, you should spend the extra time. Maybe, right? <laughs> but yeah, I felt convicted in my heart. You know, what's more important is I, I got to pray. And the Spirit of God has to speak to me, and the Spirit of God has to speak to our church and our congregation. And so, um, you know, I just took time to pray over it. I think actually that's a step of growth for me uh, personally because, you know, I'm all about efficiency and I'm all about productivity. I'm all about, you know, getting things done on time and stuff like that. Uh, but sometimes you just got to know what's more important in the moment. And, you know, for all of you, it'll probably look different uh, than it does for me. But perhaps you can just spend some time reflecting and say, where are, they, where are the areas of my day that can be interrupted for prayer so that I can know this wonderful, powerful, personal God who raises the dead to life. And I think when that happens, I think there'll be change, maybe temporary change like Jonah, but I think there will be change. Let's pray together.